Chapter Twelve of Beverly of Graustark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Beverly of Graustark by George Bar McCutcheon. Chapter Twelve. In service. It was a drowsy day, and besides, Baldos was not in a communicative frame of mind. Beverly put forth her best efforts during the forenoon, but after the basket luncheon had been disposed of in the shade at the roadside, she was content to give up the struggle and surrendered to soothing importunities of the coach as it bowled along. She dozed peacefully, conscious to the last. That he was a most ungracious creature, and more worthy of resentment than of benefaction. Baldos was not intentionally disagreeable. He was morose and unhappy because he could not help it. Was he not leaving his friends to wander alone in the wilderness while he drifted weakly into the comforts and pleasures of an inviolable service? His heart was not full sympathy with the present turn of affairs, and he could not deny that a selfish motive was responsible for his action. He had the all too human eagerness to serve beauty. The blood and fire of youth were strong in this wayward nobleman of the hills. Lying back in the seat, he pensively studied the face of the sleeping girl. Whose dark brown head was pillowed against the corner cushions of the coach. Her hat had been removed for the sake of comfort. The dark lashes fell like a soft curtain over her eyes, obscuring the merry grey that had overcome his apprehensions. Her breathing was deep and regular and peaceful. One little gloved hand rested carelessly in her lap. The other upon her breast, near the delicate throat, the heart of Baldos was troubled. The picture he looked upon was entrancing, uplifting. He rose from the lowly state in which she had found him to the position of admirer, in secret to a princess, real or assumed. He found himself again wondering if she were really Yetive, and with that fear in his heart. He was envying Grenfell Lorry, the lord and master of this exquisite creature, envying with all the helplessness of one whose hope is blasted at birth. The note which had been surreptitiously passed to him in Ganlook lay crumbled and forgotten inside his coat pocket, where he had dropped it the moment it had come into his possession, supposing that the message contained information. Which had been forgotten by France, and was by no means of a nature to demand immediate attention. Had he read it at once, his suspicions would have been confirmed, and it is barely possible that he would have refused to enter the city. Late in the afternoon, the walls of Idlewise were sighted. For the first time, he looked upon the distant housetops of the principal city of Graustark. Up in the clouds, on the summit of the mountain peak, overlooking the city, stood the famed monastery of Saint Valentine. Stretching up the gradual incline were the homes of citizens, accessible only by footpaths and donkey roads. 
Beverly was awake and impatient to reach the journey's end. He had proved a most disappointing companion, polite but with a baffling indifference that irritated her considerably. There was a set expression of defiance in his strong, clean-cut face, the look of a soldier advancing to meet a powerful foe. I do hope he'll not always act this way, she was complaining in her thoughts. He was so charmingly impudent out in the hills, so deliciously human. Now he is like a clam. Yet if will think I am such a fool if he doesn't live up to the reputation I've given him. Here are the gates, he said, half to himself. What is there in store for me beyond those walls? Oh, I wish you wouldn't be so dismal, she cried in despair. It seems just like a funeral. A thousand apologies, your highness, he murmured, with a sudden lightness of speech and manner. Henceforth I shall be a most amiable jester, to please you. Beverly and the faithful Aunt Fanny were driven to the castle, where the former bade farewell to her new knight, until the following morning, when he was to appear before her for personal instructions. Colonel Quinnox escorted him to the barracks of the guards, where he was to share a room with young Haddon, a corporal in the service. The wild, untamed gentleman from the hills came without a word, I see, said Laurie, who had watched the approach. He and Yetive stood in the window, overlooking the grounds from the princess's boudoir. Beverly had just entered and thrown herself upon a divan. Yes, he's here, she said shortly. How long do you, with all your cleverness, expect to hoodwink him into the belief? "'that you are the princess?' asked Yetive, amused but anxious. "'He's a great fool for being hoodwinked at all,' said Beverly, "'very much at odds with her protégé. "'In an hour from now he will know the truth "'and will be howling like a madman for his freedom.' "'Not so soon as that, Beverly,' said Laurie consolingly. "'The guards and officers have their instructions "'to keep him in the dark as long as possible.' Well, I'm tired and mad and hungry and everything else that isn't compatible. Let's talk about the war, said Beverly, the sunshine in her face momentarily eclipsed by the dark cloud of disappointment. Baldos was notified that duty would be assigned to him in the morning. He went through the formalities which bound him to the service for six months listening indifferently to the words that foretold the fate of a traitor. It was not until his new uniform and equipment came into his possession that he remembered the note resting in his pocket. He drew it out and began to read it with the slight interest of one who has anticipated the effect. But not for long was he to remain apathetic. The first few lines brought a look of understanding to his eyes. Then he laughed the easy laugh of one who has cast care and confidence to the winds. This is what he read. She is not the princess. We have been duped. Last night I learned the truth. She is Miss Calhoun, an American, going to be a guest at the castle. Refused to go with her into Idlewise. It may be a trap and may mean death, 
Question her boldly before committing yourself. There came the natural impulse to make a dash for the outside world, fighting his way through if necessary. Looking back over the ground, he wondered how he could have been deceived at all by the unconventional American. In the clear light of retrospection, he now saw how impossible it was for her to have been the princess. Every act, every word, every look should have told him the truth. Every flaw in her masquerading now presented itself to him, and he was compelled to laugh at his own simplicity. Caution, after all, was the largest component part of his make-up. The craftiness of the hunted was deeply rooted in his being. He saw a very serious side to the nature. Stretching himself upon the cot in the corner of the room, he gave himself over to plotting, planning, thinking. In the midst of his thoughts a sudden light burst in upon him. His eyes gleamed with a new fire, his heart leaped with new animation, his blood ran warm again. Leaping to his feet, he ran to the window to re-read the note from old France. Then he settled back and laughed with a fervour that cleared the brain of a thousand vague misgivings. She is Miss Calhoun, an American, going to be a guest at the castle, not the princess, but Miss Calhoun. Once more the memory of the clear grey eyes leaped into life. Again he saw her asleep in the coach on the road from Ganlook. Again he recalled the fervent throbs his guilty heart had felt as he looked upon this fair creature, at one time the supposed treasure of another man. Now she was Miss Calhoun, and her grey eyes, her entrancing smile, her wondrous vivacity were not for one man alone. It was marvellous what a change this sudden realisation wrought in the view ahead of him. The whole situation seemed to be transformed into something more desirable than ever before. His face cleared, his spirits leaped higher and higher with the buoyancy of fresh relief. His confidence in himself crept back into existence. And all because the fair deceiver, the slim girl with the brave grey eyes who had drawn him into a net, was not a princess. Something told him that she had not drawn him into his present position with any desire to injure or with the slightest sense of malice. To her it had been a merry jest, a pleasant comedy. Underneath all he saw the goodness of her motive in taking him from the old life and putting him into his present position of trust. He had helped her, and she was ready to help him to the limit of her power. His position in Idlewise was clearly enough defined. The more he thought of it, the more justifiable it seemed, as viewed from her point of observation. How long she hoped to keep him in the dark he could not tell. The outcome would be entertaining, her efforts to deceive, if she kept them up, would be amusing. Altogether he was ready, with the leisure and joy of youth, to await developments, and to enjoy the comedy from a point of view 
which she could not at once suspect. His subtle efforts to draw Haddon into discussion of the princess and her household resulted unsatisfactorily. The young guard was annoyingly unresponsive. He had his secret instructions and could not be inveigled into betraying himself. Baldos went to sleep that night with his mind confused by doubts. His talk with Haddon had left him quite undecided as to the value of old Franks's warning. Either Franks was mistaken or Haddon was the most skilful dissembler. It struck him as utterly beyond the pale of reason that the entire castle guard should have been enlisted in the scheme to deceive him. When sleep came, he was contenting himself with the thought that morning doubtless would give him clearer insight to the situation. Both he and Beverly Calhoun were ignorant of the true conditions that attached themselves to the new recruit. Baron Dangloss alone knew that Haddon was a trusted agent of the Secret Service, with instructions to shadow the newcomer day and night. But there was a mystery surrounding the character of Baldos, the goat hunter. Dangloss did not question for an instant, and in spite of the instructions received at the outset, he was using all his skill to unravel it. Baldos was not summoned to the castle until noon. His serene indifference to the outcome of the visit was calculated to deceive the friendly but watchful Haddon. Dressed carefully in the close-fitting uniform of the Royal Guard, taller than most of his fellows, handsomer by far than any, he was the most noticeable figure in and about the barracks. Haddon coached him into the way he was to approach the princess. Baldos listening with exaggerated intentness and with deep regard for detail. Beverly was in the small audience room of the main reception hall when he was ushered into her presence. The servants and ladies-in-waiting disappeared at a signal from her. She arose to greet him and he knelt to kiss her hand. For a moment her tongue was bound. The keen eyes of the new guard had looked into hers with a directness that seemed to penetrate her brain. That this scene was to be one of the most interesting in the little comedy was proved by the fact that two eager young women were hidden behind a heavy curtain in a corner of the room. The Princess Yetive and Countess Dagmar were there to enjoy Beverly's first hour of authority, and she was aware of their presence. Have they told you that you are to act as my special guard and escort? She asked, with a queer flutter in her voice. Somehow this tall fellow with the broad shoulders was not the same as the ragged goat hunter she had known at first. No, Your Highness, he said easily. I have come for instructions. It pleases me to know that I am to have a place of honour and trust such as this. General Marlanx has told me that a vacancy exists, and I have selected you to fill it. The compensation will be attended to by the proper persons, and your duties will be explained to you by one of the officers. This afternoon, I believe, 
you are to accompany me on my visit to the fortress, which I am to inspect. Very well, your highness, he respectfully said. He was thinking of Miss Calhoun, an American girl, although he called her your highness. May I be permitted to ask for instructions that can come only from your highness? Certainly, she replied. His manner was more deferential than she had ever known it to be, but he threw a bomb into the fine composure with his next remark. He addressed her in the Graustark language. Is it your desire that I shall continue to address you in English? Beverly's face turned a bit red and her eyes wavered. By a wonderful effort she retained her self-control stammering ever so faintly when she said in English, I wish you would speak English, unwittingly giving answer to his question. I shall insist upon that. Your English is too good to be spoiled. Then he made a bold test, his first having failed. He spoke once more in the native tongue, this time softly and earnestly. As you wish, your highness, but I think it is a most ridiculous practice, he said, and his heart lost none of its courage. Beverly looked at him almost pathetically. She knew that behind the curtain two young women were enjoying her discomfiture. Something told her that they were stifling their mirth with dainty lace-bordered handkerchiefs. That will do, sir, she managed to say firmly. It's very nice of you. But after this, pay your homage in English, she went on, taking a long chance on his remark. It must have been a complimentary, she reasoned. As for Baldos, the faintest sign of a smile touched his lips, and his eyes were twinkling as he bent his head quickly. France was right. She did not know a word of Graustark language. I have entered the service for six months, your highness, he said in English. You have honoured me, and I give my heart as well as my arm to your cause. Beverly, breathing easier, was properly impressed by this promise of fealty. She was looking with pride upon the figure of her stalwart protégé. I hope you have destroyed that horrid black patch, she said. It has gone to keep company with other devoted but deserted friends, he said, a tinge of bitterness in his voice. The uniform is vastly becoming, she went on, realizing helplessly that she was providing intense amusement for the unseen auditors. It shames the rags in which you found me. I shall never forget them, Baldos, she said, with a strange earnestness in her voice. May I presume to inquire after the health of your good Aunt Fanny, and... Although I did not see him, your uncle Sam, he asked, with a face as straight and sincere as that of a judge. Beverly swallowed suddenly and checked a laugh with some difficulty. Aunt Fanny is never ill. Some day I shall tell you more of Uncle Sam. It will interest you. Another question, if it please your highness. Do you expect to return to America soon? This was the unexpected, but she met it with admirable composure. It depends upon the time when Prince Danton 
resumes the throne in Dawsbergen, she said. And that day may never come, said he, such mocking regret in his voice that she looked upon him with newer interest. Why, I really believe you want to go to America, she cried. The eyes of Baldos had been furtively drawn to the curtain more than once during the last few minutes. An occasional movement of the long oriental hangings attracted his attention. It dawned upon him that the little play was being overheard, whether by spies or conspirators he knew not. Resentment sprang up in his breast and gave birth to a daring that was as spectacular as it was confounding. With long, noiseless strides, he reached the door before Beverly could interpose. She half started from her chair, her eyes wide with dismay, her lips parted, but his hand was already clutching the curtain. He drew it aside relentlessly. Two startled women stood exposed to view, smiles dying on their amazed faces. Their backs were against the closed door, and two hands clutching handkerchiefs dropped from a most significant altitude. One of them flashed an imperious glance at the bold discoverer, and he knew he was looking upon the real princess of Graustark. He did not lose his composure. Without a tremor, he turned to the American girl. Your Highness, he said clearly, coolly, I fear we have spies and eavesdroppers here. Is your court made up of, I should say, they are doubtless a pair of curious ladies in waiting. Shall I begin my service, Your Highness, by escorting them to yonder door? End of chapter 12